Welcome to Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts in a variety of fields to uncover the systems and patterns that help us to conceptualize and reconceptualize our world. I'm Julie Stern, founder and principal facilitator for Learning That Transfers. And I'm Trevor Elio, English language arts lead for Learning That Transfers. This podcast uses our mental model as a sense-making tool through acquiring, connecting, and transferring conceptual relationships to unlock new situations. Our guests identify three to five concepts at the heart of their field, and we discuss how those play out in a variety of settings. You can find out more about our work, including our online courses and other professional learning offerings at learningthattransfers.com. In this week's episode of Conceptually Speaking, Julie and Kayla are joined by Kwame Sarfo Mensa, mathematics teacher, as well as founder and CEO at Identity Talk Consulting. Throughout this powerful conversation, Kwame details his perspective on belonging, identity, and authenticity, each of which are foundational concepts in the culturally sustaining pedagogy that anchor his teaching practice. As you'll soon discover, at the heart of Kwame's teaching lies a commitment to honoring and uplifting all students' identities in ways that allow them to bring their authentic selves to the classroom. Because identity is the foundation of who we are and everything that we do. And identity encompasses so many different concepts, right? I mean, we're talking about, you know, gender identity. We're talking about sexual orientation. We're talking about language. You know, we're talking about nationality, socioeconomic. There's so many things that inform who we are, that help to describe who we are, those identifiers, right? So when we're talking about the... K-12 school context. And it goes back to what Kayla was saying about acid base, right? We have to understand that all those things that I mentioned help the students be the best students they can be. Stay tuned for the rest of the episode to hear about how you can leverage an asset-based approach to create an environment that liberates and educates students. Welcome to another episode of Conceptually Speaking. Today, I am joined by our mathematics lead, Kayla Duncan, to help in co-hosting this special episode with an international school consultant, Kwame Sorfo Mensa. Welcome, Kwame. We're so excited to have you here. Uh, thank you, Julie, for having me. And great to meet you, Kayla. I'm excited to be here. Super. So why don't we, we're going to unpack the topic of culturally sustaining pedagogy. But before we go there, why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself? So as you already know now, my name is Kwame Sarfamensa. I've been in the field of education for the past 15 years, uh, primarily as a middle school math teacher. I've taught in both the cities of Philadelphia and most recently in Boston. Mm-hmm. And over the past couple of years, I've transitioned into educational consulting. So May 2019, I opened up my firm, Identity Talk Consulting, which is basically a platform where we are centering the identities of teachers and getting them to stay true to who they are in the classroom, whether Mm. it's culturally, whether it's pedagogically, uh, whatever is authentically who they are. Mm, mm, in mm -hmm. in every realm and we do this through professional development so that's in the form of workshops seminars um online programming um Mm -hmm. also have a podcast which Mm -hmm. is under the platform called identity talk for educators live where we highlight the unsung heroes of education and we learn about what makes them who they are as Mm -hmm. educators because Mm -hmm. i think one thing that we don't do enough work on, particularly in our teacher prep programs, is this idea of like identity shaping and, and really understanding what makes us who we are to the core. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how does that factor into our instructional practice? How does that factor into our ability to form relationships with students, mm-hmm. um, with our colleagues? Mm-hmm. Um, and and those are some, and those are really those intangible qualities that don't always get centered in our programs, but should. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So through Identity Talk, my mission is to get educators to be empowered about 
the work that they do, and to bring their authentic selves into the education space mm-hmm. and, and not leave it at the door once they get to their schools. So mm-hmm. that's really what I'm trying to accomplish uh, through the platform. Love it. Love it. There's, you know, some, some level of overlap with what we do. We're more sort of into the curriculum design space, but we do talk about unleashing the potential of teachers to be the teacher that they, they really want to be. So often we get bogged down in the uh, sort of the policies, the paperwork, the red tape, all of those things uh, that kind of bring us down as teachers. And so how do we uh, sort of get, get back to that true passion? So I'm, I'm loving those things that you're talking about. Um, so culturally sustaining pedagogy. We asked you, you're kind of a jack of all trades. You've got a lot of interest. Uh, you've our middle school mathematics teacher, which is the main reason why I asked Kayla to come on as our mathematics lead to co-host this with me. Um, but that, that phrase in and of itself, you know, you more hear culturally relevant. And with you saying culturally sustaining pedagogy is slightly different. So maybe let's start with, before you you give us your three words that are at the core of culturally sustaining pedagogy, can you share for our listeners, what is culturally sustaining pedagogy in a nutshell? All right. So I'm no expert in this, Mm. uh, but just to give the brief history of it. So for those who are familiar with the work of uh, Dr. Glory Latson Billings, Mm -hmm. I always tell folks she is the godmother mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. CRT, uh, not the other CRT, but <laughs> uh, the culturally, uh, culturally responsive teaching. And if you just break down the words, because you know we're in conceptually speaking, so we have to break down the words. You know, got to keep it simple, right? We're responding to culture, so that's what we're fundamentally doing. And in order to respond to culture. That requires us to understand who our learners are that are in front of us culturally. We are accounting for the cultures of our students in the classroom. And that's really where it all starts. So for those who are into books, I recommend um, The Dream Keepers, which is a book that every person should have that pretty much talks about culturally responsive teaching uh, through the perspective of African-American teachers. But then as time has gone on, uh, the lexicon has shifted from culturally responsive teaching to culturally relevant teaching. Then there's multiculturalism all along the same lines. And now we have culturally sustaining pedagogies, which was coined by uh, Django Paris. So he has a book that's uh, based off of this term. And his scholarship is really the offspring of culturally responsive teaching. So when we talk about culturally sustaining practices or culturally sustaining pedagogy, we're talking about sustaining culture. And that includes the linguistic identities of our students, right? Because in the past, when we talk about culturally responsive teaching, a lot of people just think, okay, I'm going to use the math example because I just have to. Like, okay, we're just going to put the names of our students in a word problem so that they can feel like they're important, right? That's cool, but that's very surface level. When we, right, when we talk about culturally sustaining pedagogy, we're talking about the need to maintain the culturally linguistic identities of students. That means honoring their language, honoring their dialects, honoring their traditions, and not having those be lost in the educational process. Um, Because the reality is, when we look at our um, educational system, it was never designed for BIPOC students to thrive, particularly our Black, Indigenous, and Latinx students. Um, So uh, when you look at just our K-12 system, a lot of the different ways in which we are conditioned to teach, a lot of different ways in which uh, we are socialized um, into our schools 
are informed by westernized or eurocentric ideals so mm -hmm. some people will use terms such as whiteness mm -hmm. some may mm -hmm. use terms such as white supremacy culture mm -hmm. um, which can be very triggering for white yes. folks mm -hmm. but but the reality is they're not they don't align with the cultural ideals of students of color mm -hmm. so with culture sustained pedagogy the goal is to reframe our practice as educators in a way that allows our BIPOC students to feel welcomed in the classroom environment and to use their culture as a tool to access um, academic content, regardless of what content area we're, we're talking about, whether it's math, whether it's ELA, science, social studies, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there are certain aspects of their culture that can be integrated into the learning experience. And that's essentially what the goal is when we talk about culture sustaining pedagogy. Mm, love that. And you know, it's becoming so important to every single teacher. It's It used to be, like you have been in the profession about almost uh, 20 years. And when I would do consulting in certain parts of the world, they were, it was pretty homogenous, the kids who were there, you know, and there you had a few English language learners here and there. Um, now, Every single teacher I talk to has some English language learners, has this super, and it used to be, even when it started becoming more and more prevalent, even Kayla's district where I've been, you'll have the vast majority will be Spanish speakers, for instance, uh, you know, native Spanish speakers. But now, more and more, and a lot of this has to do with climate change, it has to do with uh, urbanization, it has to do with the global economy changing. I think a lot of times people don't understand the, the underlying issues of why this is happening, but migration, global migration is enormous now. And every teacher that I speak to, they'll say to me, Julie, we have 60% of our kids are English language learners. And it's not just one language that we could sort of easily hire some teachers and do, do some, some translating. We're talking 40 languages <laughs> that are being spoken in our elementary schools. And those, those are, they're growing up, they're coming into middle school, they're coming into high school and all over the world, our teachers are unprepared for how do you deal with these extraordinarily diverse classrooms. And so you mentioned the ling linguistics, um, that idea and translanguaging, I'm seeing a lot more of that on Twitter, which is, yeah. you know, for me, I'm raising my kids to be to be bilingual, we, we, they speak Spanish. And uh, it's really great because it honors that part. We speak Spanglish in our house. You know, we go back and forth. We use different words in the same sentence. We've got some words in English, some words in Spanish. And, you know, it really kind of honors that aspect that different families bring to, to the school environment to say that's not um, incorrect. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's actually kind of beautiful. Uh, it makes it makes things funny. You know, I've got my five-year-old cracks up whenever sometimes there's just a word, there's a word in Spanish that will hit the nail on the head that right. the word in English will not do it. Um, and so we use that. And my five, I crack, crack my five-year-old up whenever I sort of speak my Spanglish. Uh, but that's just a tiny example of how important this is becoming and how important it is for teachers to learn how to honor um, kids across the classroom. Kayla, what's, Liz, what's coming to your mind as, as he was speaking? It's um, asset-based, the, mm. the idea that we're building on everything a student brings to the table, their culture, their background, their experiences, it's viewing it all as an asset versus as a deficit or a gap mm. to be filled and helping students see that maybe what they, their language, um, and so perceiving it as a barrier, thinking of it as an opportunity to connect and to learn something new and to help students um, find other ways to make meaning of content or to interact with their peers. Um, but I think asset-based was the biggest thing that popped into my mind as you were speaking is that flipping the script for teachers and just education in general, you know, you think about grading, you think about the terms or the labels that are put on students and it's all perceived as kind of this, this deficit or this mm -hmm. hole to be filled. And even now with COVID learning loss is a big word that keeps going around. And maybe they didn't learn all the standards that people wanted them to learn last year, but they didn't necessarily lose anything. Um, and so uh, I love this idea of thinking about 
how do we help each student see that they're an asset to the learning community? And how do we mm. view what they're bringing to the table as a strength for us to continue to build and help them strengthen? Um, so that's kind of what's popping into my mind right now. Ah, and as you're saying that, wow. it just it gets yeah. at that very first concept. Uh, so so we always ask our guests to give us three concepts that are the core. And Kwame, if you don't mind, I'm going to read them off for our, our listeners. Belonging, authenticity, and identity. Um, and as Kayla was speaking, I thought of the word belonging because she said, you're, you know, you are an asset to our community, but you can go in whatever order you want to go in. Which of those three words do you want to start with unpacking? I think they're all interconnected. They are. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, as I go through all those terms, you know, you might see me blend them together, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, organically. Uh, so I want to start with belonging. And it's going to tie back to what Kayla and you were saying, saying, Julie, about just the importance of translanguaging. Mm -hmm. So one thing about belonging is belonging means embracing the whole self to the point where, all right, like I'm welcoming all of who you are. Like you belong in this environment. We're not going to ostracize you in any way. We're not going to... Um, leave any parts of yourself at the door. We're bringing all of you in, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. So going back to what you were saying um, regarding translanguaging and just the emergence of, I know we use the term English language learners, but now the term that's being used now is emerging bilinguals. And that goes back to this idea of honoring our um, our bilingual or multilingual learners. So for those who are familiar with Dr. Ophelia Garcia's work, she talks a lot about translanguaging, um, mostly in the Latinx context, but it's applicable to any students who are coming in as multilingual learners. And the reason why she uses the term emerging bilingual ties back to what Kayla says, because when you're an emerging bilingual, you're affirming the fact that their native tongue is an asset for learning. And so often when we talk about, um, you know, English language learning, we tend to separate the native tongue from English. But in reality, like you mentioned with the Spanglish example, we're actually interspersing the two languages. They're working hand in hand to build English proficiency. So you can't, you can't do it without one of them. You have to do it with both. Now, now, going back to belonging, in order for learning to happen in our classrooms, students must feel like they're welcomed. Students must sense that their teachers genuinely are invested in who they are and they're doing everything possible to create an environment where students can be authentic and they don't have to change who they are in order to uh, satisfy a narrative that doesn't speak to their true existence on this planet. So belonging is very much key. And there are different ways in which we can show students that they belong. Um, one is this idea of and, and Paulo Freire talked about this in Pedagogy of the Oppressed when he talks about the banking method, where we as educators are omniscient. We know everything that's going on and the students who are in front of us are just empty vessels that we're just putting knowledge in them. And it's not this symbiotic relationship that, that encourages you know, that reciprocity where, you know what, you're learning from me, but guess what? I'm learning from you because in order for me, to be the best teacher that I can be, I need to learn from you. I need to learn who you are. What is your learning style? So talking about, you know, how Garnett talked about this frames of mind, multiple intelligences, right? We all access and process information in different ways. How can I tap into those learning modalities so that you can be in position for success? Right? And, and that's, something that requires a little bit of extra work on our end, especially when we're looking at curriculum, right? 
if we're looking, and, and I mean, I'm sure you talk about this a lot, Julie, about just the importance of pacing and how sometimes we get caught up in getting students ready for standardized testing um, as opposed to slowing down or adjusting the pacing to where you're allowing the developmental process of your students to inform how fast and how slow you go through your lessons, whether or not you um, reteach students after the whole class fails an assessment versus, oh man, I only got a week or so to go before this next benchmark. I got to push through. I don't have time to reteach. But so we're, we're fighting this because the reality is in most states, the way our students perform has an impact on how we get evaluated as teachers. So unfortunately, it forces us to engage in inappropriate practices that are counterproductive to our students and are not student-centered. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that relates to the idea of belonging. A lot of times teachers will say to me, oh, I don't have time to do you know, icebreakers and these types of ideas to sort of articulate uh, belonging to build this classroom culture. And you know, we often say it's, it's an investment. It's, it's like investing in your health. It's like investing in your savings account, you know, right? At, fir at first it's gonna hurt. At first it's gonna take a little bit of time, but then, later on you can go faster because you've established that culture of belonging you've established that learning community where students truly do feel like they belong and uh what you said about not sort of leaving part of themselves at the door when they come into the classroom i think that's that's really important and that you know it's it's so important for all types of learners so you know you mentioned bipoc in particular but students with adhd making them sit down all day <laughs> uh, and not moving and sitting in a desk, this is counter to who they are. Um, so I'm loving the movements around standing desks, around uh, incorporating movement into the classroom. Oh, that's good for all learners. It's also the other piece of it is when you open up your mind to meet certain learners, you actually end up doing really well for the majority of kids, because, uh, you know, for instance, no kid wants to sit down for eight hours. <laughs> um, and so, you know, uh, or maybe they want to, but they, it's not good for them. So it's, you know, just sort of the idea of expansiveness. What I've found that was almost counterintuitive when I was a young teacher was that when I've got diversity in my classroom and I think expansively, I'm actually helping almost all my students when I kind of, you know, diversify my, my skill set. So I love that, that you talked about. And you're so right about the, this narrative in our heads when you have an end of year exam of, I have to get through it. I remember the, the pacing and the units, and I still know the order of the units for my math uh, course that I taught. And then it was really by the end of March, we needed to be wrapping up. So after spring break, we could do test prep review. And then we took the test. And then we also had this block of time at the end of the year after the test, there was kind of this limbo. And so that pressure is there. But as you mentioned, it's putting the pressure to go faster doesn't mean that we're going to do better. You know, just because we've gone through all the units, we've covered everything doesn't mean students have learned everything or even a majority of what we've shown them. And so this idea of hitting on their different modalities, helping them connect with the different ways that they process, providing opportunities in class and helping teachers see that, yeah, it takes a little bit of work on the planning end, but as Julie said, if we take the time and do these pieces up front, then we're not having to worry about as many students needing all these retake opportunities, you know, or we're not having to rush through. If we are able to help them connect to content, remediate, extend, whatever it is within the unit or within the lesson, then we're not having to worry about the back end. We're proactive rather than reactive. And so that's just something that um, I think if we can help teachers find those tools and just take that breath to say, all right, yeah, it's going to take a little bit right now, but it'll pay off in the long run for us and our students. And we can help shift that mindset of I need to march through the pacing guide. We have to stay on track. Um, and it's, so I have an interest in helping students with their, their efficacy and seeing themselves as learners, especially in math. That was all of my students and even in parent teacher 
conferences, parents would come in and say, oh, I'm not a math person. So I know they just won't be a math person or I can't help them. And so there's this constant um, story that students and parents are telling themselves about who is a math person and who is not. And I think that if we can tap into what you're saying, Kwame, about helping students feel like they belong, we can start to maybe erase that story that's kind of cycling through generation after generation. So I just, I love that idea of helping students feel like they belong and having teachers, giving them the strategies so that they can start putting those uh, practices in place. Oh, that's that's too good, Kayla. That's too good. It actually has <laughs> something that tied to this too. Um, and you might do this with your students, but um, in the beginning of the year, typically, we give students, you know, diagnostic assessments because we want to assess where students are, where they retain as far as math skills are concerned from the previous year, and, you know, who needs interventions, who's going to need, you know, some extra work um, when it comes to small groups and, and all this stuff. That's all standard. But what I, but what I started to do um, during the last few years is have my students write a mathography. And a mathography is just basically an autobiography of a student's math experiences. And, the, and when you talk about um, belonging and identity, by asking them to share what their math experiences are, but also tell me how they best prefer to learn, what they like to do outside of school, what is your perspective on school as a whole? Do you love school? Do you like school? Like I am getting intel from the learner, from that actual learner. And they're telling me how they need to be taught. We don't always do that as educators. We kind of take this paternalistic approach and say, hey, everybody, look at what I'm doing on the board. This is the way that you should all do it and we and let's okay, we do this in math too, especially when we talk about algorithms and formulas. If you just follow these steps that I wrote on this anchor chart, you're gonna to get to the answer. But what we don't, but we don't, but we don't, but what we don't do a good enough job of doing is inviting students into that um that co-creative process where they're able to share their insights. That's part of belonging. The fact that I am asking you for feedback, the fact that I am asking you to provide a different approach to solving this problem, right? That's letting me know that you belong in this classroom. You are honored in this classroom. And then when we speak, speak about identity, we have to look at how students learn. We also have to look at waiting time, right? So, you know, fortunately, we have this sense of urgency. And if anybody has read um, Tima Okun's um, article on white supremacy culture, there's a whole bunch of characteristics. But one characteristic that she touches on is the sense of urgency, the sense of immediacy, right? Like, I need the answers right now. We need the growth right now, as opposed to this mindset of, hey, this is going to be a marathon. Now, when we come into the school year, is the goal for students to grow as learners or to achieve a specific benchmark score? I feel like there's a difference. And I think sometimes school leaders, district officials, administrators, they focus too much on the number as opposed to the actual growth that takes place. Because the reality is this. If you're teaching in an inclusion classroom like I have, where you have students with IEPs, where you have students who are emergent bilinguals, where you have students who have 504 plans, there's no one size fits all model that's going to instruct all those students. They all have different needs. So as a result, that's going to have an impact on the way in which on my pacing. That's gonna have an impact on how I sequence my lessons. I may have to do some rearranging of the scope of sequence. I may have to go back to the previous grade to hit those prerequisites because guess what? Especially in math where things are incremental. Like if you can't multiply, I cannot teach you 
how to do how to deal with cross products with fractions or proportional relationships. You have to know how to multiply. So I have to go back in time and maybe do some drills or some other things to get them to this place. That's going to take away from my pacing. And that's okay because in the end, if I'm going to speed through the curriculum, all I'm doing is increasing the anxiety of students. But if I respect them enough, I'm going to adjust the pace in a way that it alleviates that anxiety, especially in math where so many kids come in with fixed mindsets. Mm-hmm. And they feel like, no, I'm not really good at math. And there's like this idea that there's this, you have to have this innate ability to be a math person. Like you're born with it. Right. Like, no, like you have to work for that. That's right. Yeah. And everybody can build capacity, but we have to instill that mindset in our students. Right. I love the focus on growth. Uh, I think that's enormous. And it reminds me of the story when, when the pandemic hit, my kids' preschool was doing one-on-ones because you know they're 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 four years old (laughs) and they kept they kept reviewing the letter sounds well my son has known the letter sounds since he was two and so it was like a battle every single time to get him to sit down for that 20 minutes on on the zoom and I said can you please do something else and they're like no this is our curriculum that's what they told me. <laughs> no, no, that's our curriculum. And I'm like, it's a one-on-one. <laughs> so it's not like, you know, it's not like the other kids had to be accommodated. Um, and so that's just a, a sh- tiny example of how so often we we lack creativity in, in how we deal with our students. So I love your uh, focus on growth. Wherever the kid is, we want to see growth. And, you know, even if a kid, maybe they're already at grade level, which we have a lot of kids who are, and they're sitting in their board. And so you want, you want to sort of focus on that growth rather than benchmark. I think that's such a beautiful thing to articulate uh, concretely to, to our listeners. Getting to your second, um, we could go all day. We're, we're like almost running out of time. We've only unpacked the first concept is this beautiful Um, authenticity. I would love to hear the relationship between students' authenticity, which we've talked a bit about, and teachers, because you, you, know, you started Identity Talk as teachers becoming their most authentic selves. So what's the relationship in your mind between teachers' authenticity and students' authenticity? I think I'll keep it real simple. So mm-hmm. one thing that students, particularly secondary level students, I taught middle school and they're all about people who keep it real. Mm, mm, mm-hmm. That's right. Middle school students have they a can radar. they can smell it. They, they, they yes, can smell it. <laughs> they can detect it. It's like if it's a radar and they see that you're being fake or you're not being That's real. Radar is going off, mm-hmm. right? So when we talk about teacher authenticity, in order for teachers to be authentic they have to combat these norms that we're conditioned to think about as it relates to pedagogy, as it relates to how you're supposed to interact with students, as it relates to uh, policies, right? A teacher isn't gonna be their authentic self if they're succumbing to the pressure of performing all the time, especially as it relates to teacher assessments, as it relates to um, teacher culture, right? Like there are teachers who get in trouble if their kids are too loud. But what if that, what if that loudness is productive loudness? What, is, what if it's productive chaos? Like we don't always contextualize the learning um, environment. We see students being loud and we assume they're being unruly. And that's something that easily has become racialized where you know, oh, Black and Latinx students, you know, they're known for being loud and unruly, but do you see that they're learning, though? Are they learning? Are they retaining the standards that are being taught to them? So I think with all those pressures that are there, it's hard for teachers to be inauthentic, but here's how it connects to student authenticity. If students show students that they're real, right? And that means sharing the life experiences. So I'll use myself as an example. I talk to my students about things outside of math all the time. I'm talking to them about 
music. I'm talking to them. I'm debating with them about sports. I am talking to them about my son, my wife, what it means to be a homeowner. Like I'm, I'm, I'm teaching them life skills. You're not going to find that in a common core curriculum. You're not gonna you're not gonna find that in new generation standards, right? These are things that I am talking about from my experience because I feel like that's what students need to need to know. I've talked to students about my um, college experience, right? Um, and, and you know what? They ate it all up because it's like, wow, there are main dimensions to Mr. Sarfa Mensa that I wasn't even aware of. And and because I am being open and vulnerable and I'm being honest with them, it gives students, it opens up the door for students to be authentic and to share their life experiences. And we can now exchange stories about how we grew up, how we're navigating life outside of school. Maybe we have similar challenges that we faced throughout parts of our lives. So I think in order to open up student authenticity, the teacher, the teachers themselves have to be authentic and real with students. Mm-hmm. I think that's a mm-hmm. simple answer to that. I question. love it. Bring bring your whole self so that you can the students can bring their whole selves. And you know, all of those connections that you you were talking about that you can make with your students about sports, you know, harnessing pop culture. I often, you know, I often would try to keep up with pop culture just for that reason. So that I could, you know, I can stay real with my with my my especially middle schoolers and teenagers. Uh, you know, you you've got to keep it up. And even the younger kids, you know, I know I, too, I, yeah. I know all the name of Paw Patrol and all of that stuff, you know. So you gotta you gotta you gotta keep it fresh. Um, and yeah. so that's that's also uh, beautiful. So I love that uh, relationship between authenticity of students and teachers. And the last part we the last concept we've already talked a lot about. We as you said, it's all connected. Uh, is identity. And so tell us a little bit what, why you selected that as one of your core concepts. Because identity is the foundation of who we are and everything that we do. Um, and identity encompasses so many uh, different concepts, right? I mean, we're talking about um, you know, gender identity, we're talking about sexual orientation, we're talking about language, um, you know, we're talking about nationality, um, socioeconomic, there's so many things that inform who we are, that help to describe who we are, those identifiers, right? So when we're talking about the K-12 school context, and it goes back to what Kayla was saying about acid base, right? We have to understand that language, we have to understand that um, all those things that I mentioned help the students be the best students they can be. And particularly um, when we focus on um, intersectionality. So that's a term that's been thrown out there uh, for those who are halfway familiar with critical race theory and the origins of it you should know Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term intersectionality, which basically, which was born out of legal studies where uh, we're talking about the intersection between, in her, in her case, being a black woman, being black, but also being a woman. So already we're in a society where, you know, being a black person is already tough. Now mm-hmm. we intersect that <laughs> with being a woman we're bringing in the gender aspect of it. And now it's almost like a double impact that's mm-hmm. being, that's happening. Mm-hmm. So now imagine, so now imagine our students who are um, queer, right? Who are part of LGBTQ plus community mm-hmm. who have not yet come out and they're fighting an identity crisis that we're not even aware of because when you think about our policies, when you think about, um, the way that we interact, even some of the terms that we say. Like we're trying to, like for us, if we're trying to um, call on the entire class or, or get their attention, we may say, hey guys. Mm-hmm. Like that's a natural thing that we say. Mm-hmm. Our teachers growing up said this to us, whether mm-hmm. it was a combination, whether it was all boys, all girls, or a combination of, the, of that. Mm-hmm. You, you, now that's not really the thing to say. 
And I have to use gender neutral terms to honor your students who may not identify with that binary, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so I think when we talk about identity, we have to account for how our students show up, how they want to show up, mm-hmm. and and how they um, ask for us to <laughs> to show up. So uh, that's so that's something that we always have to account for, and that also includes cultural customs, being culturally literate, and understanding that there are certain norms, there are certain um, mannerisms that we may see mm-hmm. that are specific to that culture that we may misinterpret as disrespect, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like we have to have a heightened awareness when it comes to that. So I think those are things that all um, come to play. Now, all of this is just making me think of um, just the, like you'd said, it's those things that we've been conditioned to think about or just the way that we grow up when um, the intentionality and going back and really having to go against the grain almost of what we've experienced or what we have been taught and not um that anything was meant to be with like malintent, but now that we, we know better, we do better. And we have to kind of really go into every lesson interaction conversation with that intentionality in mind of helping everyone feel included um, to promote that culture where students have um, their authentic selves. And then also being reflective and thinking about, cause when you said, Hey guys, I was like, Oh yeah, I know I've said that before. Or mm-hmm. I can think of some of my elementary friends, like, all right, boys and girls, let's all come mm-hmm. to the carpet. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, if we all just say, Hey y'all, then maybe it'll, <laughs> it'll work out. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's our Southern girl right the there. Minor, minor adjustment. <laughs> but it's, so thinking about that, it's, um, you've taught me so much in our short time together with the podcast and just thinking about how much more intentional and reflective we can be as educators to help students with their um, authenticity and feeling like they belong in our classroom. So that's, that's awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. I think, and I, I always think about my, my husband and I, our relationship, I'm from Louisiana and he's from Connecticut. And so while we're well, both, get you out know, of here. yeah, I mean, I'm from Connecticut. <laughs> are you? Uh, so just, you know, on the surface, you, you look at us, we're both white skinned, you know, there's, we're similar age, we're similar economic background, things like that. But culturally, anybody who knows the United States, you know, culturally as a whole, Louisiana is a very different Mm -hmm. monster in connection to (laughs) Connecticut. And so, you know, a lot of those things, even for us in our marriage, we've been together for 15 years, but uh, at first it was, it was something to navigate of how you deal with problems, how loud you mentioned the the noise level you can, you can (laughs) guess when it was my family versus who's his family, which one's louder. Uh, You know, people from New Orleans, when, when, when we hear a song, we just bust out we just start shaking it we just can't we can't help it it's like in our dna um and he he thought this was very strange if i'd be walking down the street and i I, or you know a a fourth of july festival or something like that and you're some good music you just kind of you know snap to the beat you kind of shake it a little bit that was really weird for him um (laughs) just you know tiny little things that it doesn't always have to be about race it could be a lot of other aspects of who you are and where you're from and how you you grew up that really just make make it different and not neither one is i mean of course louisiana is more fun we could say but uh neither one is better than the other um and so i think you know uh, like you said kayla just that's that quick check you know Mm -hmm. that's just that you maybe never thought of it before you never Mm -hmm. thought about hey guys or whatever but it's just now i think it's in some ways teachers can say oh god it's exhausting um you know but i think it's 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 just a quick check to say am i am i making sure all of my students feel uh at the least not um hurt by by the language that I use, by my curriculum, by the pace, by you know, by the norms, all of those things. Um not not just sort of quote unquote offended, but how do they not feel oppressed by the way in which I set up my classroom? And I think that's that's a distinction that you know I'm still learning myself, that we're all still learning. Everybody's still, you know, on this journey, uh, where like you said, when you when you find out, you think about it, you know better. And but it re- does require this element of humility. 
that I think, uh, you know, is, is, can be hard for people to swallow, just this element of humility. But circling all the way back to, you know, our first point of becoming our authentic selves, becoming the teacher we always wanted to be. Yeah. I, I haven't met a teacher who didn't join the profession because they love learning. They love the act of growing. And almost every single teacher I've met is committed to lifelong learning, is committed. They, they know that it feels good to learn. And so, you know, just really trying to frame uh, this space that we're in right now with our increasing diversity of our students, they were always diverse, first of all. You know, yeah. even if they all look the same, even if they're all boys, you know, you, you, no matter, you got a group of 20, 30, 40 kids, you're going to have different humans in front of you. And, you know, the, just because the languages are increasing or, you know, the racial makeup or different things like that are increasing, you're, you're, every teacher's got a diverse group of humans in front of them. And so I think it is a beautiful space that we're in right now where we're having to ask ourselves, how am I committed to lifelong learning? How am I committed to lifelong growth? And when I do better, I feel better because it feels good to grow. Uh, and so, you know, I'm really just trying to frame it like that for a lot of teachers that it's not like yet another thing that you have to consider. It's not that you're not trying to offend anybody. You're trying not to oppress anybody. And we can all agree that that's 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 a noble goal to, to try to, uh, you know, weed out the oppressive uh, norms that we might have in our school culture. Yes. Go ahead. You want to say something to that? I think, yes, because real quickly, the way that we look at growing is different depending on how you view teaching mm, if, speak, teaching speak a, if teaching is a passion of yours mm -hmm. going to a, a workshop mm -hmm. reading a book listening to podcasts that are focused on education does not feel like work it That's feels right. like a hobby mm -hmm. but if it's not something that you really love and it's not something that you internalize it's always going to be viewed as work mm -hmm. through your lens. So mm -hmm. the love's got to be there. The passion's mm -hmm. got to be there. That's what allows you to be a lifelong learner. Mm -hmm. A true lifelong learner is by understanding that, hey, in order for me to be the best teacher I can be, I have to continue to grow in my craft so that I can model that for my students That's so right. they can grow in their different um, areas. Mm -hmm. That's right. I love that you use that word model because so many times I'll say to teachers, I started, we started doing workshops lately where we just ask, what are your long-term goals for your students? Mm -hmm. And nobody ever says the quadratic formula. <laughs> nobody ever says, you know, uh, dates in history. It, what they say is basically lifelong learning. They basically say, I want my students to be critical thinkers, to be problem solvers, to be able to continue their learning long into the future. Um, and so if that is what you want for your students, the question becomes, are you modeling that for your students? Mm -hmm. And Do you if embody yes, it? Yes, embody, absolutely. You embody if, that, what right. are the actions you are showing your students that you are a lifelong learner? And I think that's a really nice uh, reflection question. Um, anything else as we're wrapping up, what are any other sort of final thoughts that you have for our listeners? This has been an amazing conversation. <laughs> Wow. Um, so I am reading, the book that I'm reading right now is uh, Chris Emden's Ratchetdemic. So that's the book I'm reading. Mm -hmm. And there's um, a chapter where he talks about the difference between institutional understanding and intuitional understanding. And this and this goes back to what I was talking about earlier in the conversation uh, where we tend to be indoctrinated with these different ideas of how to teach and how students are supposed to behave, but we don't always follow our intuition as teachers. And more times than not, our intuition really tells us what way we should go. But we fight against it because we feel like if we follow our intuition, it may get us reprimanded. It may lead to uh, consequences, fair or unfair. So I think 
as teachers, we have to really follow our intuitional understanding. If we feel, if we sense that there's something wrong, if we sense that the lesson is going south, make that audible, change it right now. If we sense that students are not in the mood to learn, okay, let's, mm -hmm. let's have a meeting and let's unpack what's causing them to not learn, right? So really just following intuition, not always relying on the script and just saying, well, this is what I should be doing this, but my heart's telling me I should be doing something else. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I mean, there have been days where, I mean, I teach math 90 minutes per, you know, per class. There are days where I'm supposed to be teaching about, uh, for example, area of a triangle, <laughs> but I spent an entire day, the entire time, talking about the importance of, of you know, investing in, in finances, the importance of saving your money, the importance of owning a home versus renting a home, mm -hmm. because that's something that's, um, that's, the, that's an education that's not always given to folks who look like myself. Uh, they don't always know the difference. So, and that turned out to be a great lesson, even though I didn't teach what I was supposed to teach, the mm -hmm. students left the classroom with something. That's mm -hmm. intuition mm -hmm. versus <laughs> institution. Yeah. Love that. Love that. So gorgeous. So you are, you have an active presence on social media, lots of different blogs, websites, your own podcast. What's the easiest way uh, for our listeners to find you? Can you give us some, some details? Sure. Um, my social media home is Instagram. Mm. Uh, so you can find me with my handle at Quam, K-W-A-M underscore the underscore identity underscore shaper yes it's a little bit long but you could just also type in my actual name Kwame Sarfa Mensa I'll pop right up uh, but as far as everything identity talk you can go to my company website at identity talk for numeral four uh, educators.com and you'll be able to find information about the services that we provide with professional development and consulting, you'll find all the episodes of the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. You'll find our online programming and everything Identity Talk. So that's probably the best way to learn about the work that uh, we do. Love it. Well, this was an awesome conversation. Thank you, Kayla, for being my co-pilot here. And thank you so much, Kwame. It was really great to chat. Yes. Thank you, Julie and Kayla. I appreciate y'all. It was wonderful meeting you. Yes, likewise. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us to understand our world. If you like this podcast, please like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform and join our community by visiting learningthattransfers.com.